we have to talk about Italy. Ah, right. Well, I've got the wine list again, and there's quite a lot of Italian on this. Uh, the Gordon's Wine Bar wine list is Gavi, the Pinot Grigio, Dal right. Venezi, Friulano. That's all the whites. But on the reds, there are even more, and uh, even more harder to pronounce. So Excellent. this should be uh, Eccellente. So the Barbera. 1212, it's at Otrepo Pavesi, Castello di Sigolnola. Oh, and there's a Chianti, and I think it's the one that we might have talked about in uh, episode one. Uh, it's the Ugiano Rocchi Alanta. Problem with Chianti is some great wines, some lots of good wines. Monte Pulciano d'Abruzzo Pacifino. I think you said Monte Pulciano d'Abruzzo. Did you get the point, Ol? Italy is confusing. The biggest bugbear sometimes is, oh, blimey, Italy. How do you get your head round Italy? How do you put your finger on the pulse of Italian wine? Because it's a large country. Every region of Italy produces wine. They have indigenous grape varieties that we haven't really heard of before. There's the whole food thing going on. Do you know what, Ol? I think we might need to go to Italy. Do you know, Rich, is there any way that we can sort of go to Italy in London without actually travelling all the way to Italy? I will see what I can do. I am Mr. Fix-It. Leave it with me. Wow, so here we are. Rich, here we are, as if by magic, as close to Italy as we possibly can get. Where are we? We are not lying by saying we're in Italy. However, I have to be honest, all, we're actually just outside Liverpool Street Station, sort of in the sort of eastern part of the city of London. The reason we're here is because a good friend of mine, who's also a wine educator and wine journalist, who also happens to be Italian, Buongiorno Luisa, how are you? Buongiorno Richard, lovely to see you again. Uh, and hello Oliver, I heard all about, all about you because I listened to the first uh, series of the podcast. Very impressive. Oh, may I issue my most sincere apologies for putting you through that, Louisa? Absolutely lovely to see you. A genuine, a genuine proper Italian in Italy. What could be better? is regional, it's like lots of different middle countries joined together. Italy has only been Italy since 1860, when that chap Garibaldi unified it, then retired and made some biscuits. So, um, you love that gag. I haven't heard that, Richard. Take it back. <laughs> it's like the magnificent McVitie's wines. So what we're doing with the wines all is, basically, it's impossible. Louisa and yourself and myself, we could be here a month and we would still be working our way around Italian wines, great varieties, discussing food interactions and all the rest of it. But what we're doing here in this fabulous place, this marvellous part of Italy, let's talk about the wines first. We can introduce the food a bit later. The Friulano, that comes from northern Italy. That's the kind of area north of um, Venice, northeast of Venice. The Grillo is um, a white wine from Sicily. So we've gone right from the top 
right to the bottom. We're tasting a rosé from Louise's own province, um, Piemonte in the northwest. So we're tasting a pink wine, which is good. And then a bit later on, we'll uh, we'll look at some reds. And by the end of it all, I'm hoping we'll have A, had an ace time with all three of us having a convivial lunch. Secondly, we'll have tasted some delicious food. Uh, thirdly, we'll have really enjoyed the wines. And fourthly, hopefully we'll have explored a little bit of interaction between some of the wines and the food. So, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? It sounds like the start of a workshop where people go, what are your aims and objectives of this workshop? Let's revisit them at the end of the episode and see if we've satisfied them. And yes, can we get out a flip chart and write down loads of things? And I remember doing this at a conference once, writing lots of things earnestly on a flip chart paper. It was all really important to the future of the company. We all then went out and had too much to drink and I left the flip chart paper in the boot of a taxi, never to be seen again. While though, I think we should all tuck in into this one beautiful aperitif, this Campari spritz. We are cheapskates today, one glass and three straws. Luisa, just tell us the importance of the aperitivo. Aperitivo to start a meal and digestivo to end a meal. You start with an aperitivo to prepare your stomach, to receive the food and to make the dining experience more enjoyable. You end with a digestivo to settle your stomach and to help you digest better. The aperitivo is very important for us more than cocktails. It's normally quite simple. It could be just a glass of prosecco. It could be a spritzer with aperol or like we're having today with Campari. It would always contain some bitter herbs which means that it helps your stomach to receive the food. I love the way there's actually a reason behind it rather than just an excuse to have an extra um, glass. Exactly. And don't you love the way that the Italians have worked out a way that we need to prepare our stomachs to receive? It's lovely, isn't it? Louisa has had a sip already, of course. So we've got three straws. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm your conscience. And there it goes. As the ice bucket continues behind us, we seem to have uh, an ice factory. The noisiest ever ice bucket in the world, just as we start recording. But Oh, my word. I love it. Giorgio Locatelli oh on the word. telly. And he goes, oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> I also love it. I also love it. I love it. I love it more. <laughs> but you see what I mean? There is this touch of bitterness, there's these herbs which have been infused with this wine-based aperitivo or drink. Because let's not forget that uh, aperitivi are normally wine-based. They're always infused with some bitter herbs on some herbaceous tones because that's what helps you to receive your food before you eat. Allora, Grillo from Sicily, beautiful grape, it's so typical of the island of Sicily. And interestingly enough, the name comes from the word cricket. Oh, so good. that's, yeah. Fantastic. So you know about boycott and uh, gower and all that, both of them? I know nothing, but I can tell you that this is an autochthonous grape from Sicily. Not a sporty grape. <laughs> it comes uh, from, the, the name is because there were a lot of crickets in this particular vineyard, which of course had to be disposed of or moved uh, elsewhere because they were eating all the good grapes, but the name has remained. A very interesting thing to know is that for the consumers out there, one of the nicest straightforward, very pleasant grill I've ever found is actually in the co-op. It's just about £6.90, I think, and it is extremely pleasant. I would recommend it. Have a go, Rich. How is the grillo, sir? What I like about it, it's got a good acidity, which is really important in Italian wine, often when you're pairing it with food. For some people, they might think, oh, that's a bit high acidity on my tummy, but if you're having it with food, you're going to neutralise that. 
and it's really fresh, it's really lemony, and presumably Grillo is, does really well in Sicily because Sicily is hot as anything, about as hot as it gets in Europe, and yet the acidity is still there. And that's the USP of indigenous Italian grape varieties. They hang on to their acidity, even when they're in the deep south like Sicily. Really lemony, medium-bodied, absolutely delicious. Give so it a go. desperate to have a taste of this after that essay. But very, very interesting what you say. I'm expecting acidity. It's quite subtle, the nose, but yeah. I love it. Let me have a go. Lovely, lemony. It's quite zingy, isn't it? Zingy. Acidity is a good thing, right? Acidity is a very good thing because it's what holds the wine together. Otherwise, the wine would be flabby in the mid-palate and you want acidity to give you a clean, zesty finish. And, well, we don't want to be flabby in the middle, do we, Ollie? <coughs> <coughs> right, good. Better not put any photos up on the website. Our starter looks to me, I can see, is it mozzarella, fig and ham and rocket? Are those the correct ingredients? No, no, no. This is not mozzarella. This is burrata. Golly, I'm an idiot. Burrata. Well, I thought that was a donkey. Oh, no, that's Spanish. Burrata. It is basically based on the word burro, which means uh, butter. So it's a very, very, very creamy mozzarella. A speciality, really, of uh, southern Italy, but mainly Campania and Puglia. Oh, have a go at tasting the grillo again, as soon as you've tasted the burrato ch cheese, because obviously it's, there's some fat in the cheese. And it be interesting to know whether you notice an effect interaction of the acidity with the wine and the kind of fat of the cheese. Wow. Do you know what? I expected nothing. I really did. But there was something. Right before when I've done um, food and wine, I don't really have the adjectives. There was some sort of comment. Do you want to have a try as well? We're kind of running a bit low on the old grillo. I think you've eaten most of your cheese as well. It's a really interesting experiment. There is something going on where the two combine. So Richard now is doing the experiment. The wine, which is a bit low, and the cheese, although to me, by the way, it just tastes like mozzarella, but it's very nice. What do you think? There's kind of a little explosion going on there. What I love is the interaction, is a simple interaction, whereby the lovely creaminess, the fattiness, if you like, of the cheese is offsetting the acidity in the wine. So as a result, for me, the beautiful grillo, which tastes a bit... A little bit high on the acidity if you taste it by itself. Yeah. When you have it with the cheese, the emulsifying fattiness of the cheese is pulling down the acidity of the wine and the whole thing is integrating together. I totally agree. I love the way that the acidity of the wine cuts through the richness of the burrata and per se burrata is a very rich cheese. It's a match made in heaven. Do you eat the skin of the fig, Louisa? Do you eat the skin of the fig? What are you asking? Honestly, of course you do. Uh, right, so I'm, I'm not left in any doubt. <laughs> I feel a bit embarrassed. I really should go back to my baked beans on toast, Rich. I remember we, we fed baked beans to one of our German au pairs, and she said, why would you eat this? <laughs> I think she had a point. This reminds me of one of my experiences, because I came over to England as an au pair very many years ago, decades, but I won't tell you how old I am. I could not understand why English people would put salad cream, you know, on their salad. Say, where is the oil? And I said, well, why do you want oil? Are you sick? Go to the chemist. Because you could only buy olive oil from the chemist. I wanted olive oil and uh, vinegar. And so vinegar is for chips, no, it's for salad. Oh, I can imagine you as an as a, uh, innocent Italian girl coming to England being so sad. At the, uh, the food that was given to you. My mother used to send me food parcels. Oh. <laughs> Here's some hazlet. 
Yeah, exactly. Here's some corned beef. Enjoy your tongue, Louisa. <laughs> Will it remind you of home? No. So, Louisa, we've been talking about, and I think it, it relates to appellation in the French context, but we're talking about DOC and DOCG. Can you just explain to us the, what they mean and what the difference is? So, DOC in Italian means Denominazione di Origine Controllata, which is like the French appellation controlée. DOCG means uh, Denominazione di Origine Controllata e Garantita, so it's the guaranteed. The difference basically is uh, to, have, to, to have a DOC already means that your wine is let's say I don't mean superior but it is because it has passed the stringent tests it is a, a, an indication to the consumer that you are buying a, uh, a good wine. DOCG, the guaranteed, doesn't necessarily mean that the wine is better, but it comes from more restricted zones. That said, we need to know that uh, Chianti, for example, the whole area is DOCG. You can get some pretty ordinary Chianti and it's still DOCG. And staying into Tuscany, um, some producers have chosen to ignore the DOCG because uh, the regulations are very strict. This is not to the letter, but I'm just giving you an example. For example, you know, you have to pick on a certain day or between a certain period of time. You can only get uh, so many liters out of uh, uh, so many kilos of uh, grapes and so on. So wines, which are really expensive, like uh, Sassicaia Tignanello, have chosen to have the IGT indication or geographical typicity, indicazione geografica tipica, outside the DOCG because the producer knows best. They know what the grapes need and they won't stand for being told you will pick at this time of the year, you will produce this much wine. They say we know what we are doing and they can command a very high price even at IGT level. And that's interesting because IGT, a bit like table wine in France used to indicate the lesser quality wine because it wasn't good enough to get within the Appalachian rules. So the irony is some of the absolutely top wines, as Louise has just said, don't want to be restricted by the rules of DOC and DOCG, do their own thing, make phenomenal wine and kind of a label that could be misinterpreted as ordinary table wine. This reminds me very much of a conversation in the first series just to show that I've learned something. And of course you're saying ordinary Chianti's can still be DOCG. It's an indication of not necessarily quality, but authenticity. Telling you where it's come from. And we have a rosé. And please describe, and let's have a slurp at some point. This rosé is very unusual because it comes from um, uh, Piemonte, where I come from. Didn't bring it with me. I got it from Italy <laughs> here in London. Beautiful, beautiful salmon pink made from the venerated Nebbiolo grape, the very best um, grape that you can find in Piemonte, the one that makes uh, Barolo, but when it's vinified as a rosé wine, it will give you this outstanding, uh, beautiful colour. What I like about this wine, and you see when you taste it, it has the same intensity of uh, a red wine, but not the colour. And I like that because it really opens out, um, opens up in your, your, on your palate. My God, that is a red wine. 
It's a red wine Some in a rosé view. So there's uh, very little left, <coughs> Louisa, but salmon pink, it's a beautiful colour and it tastes like it tastes like a red wine. It's got loads going on. Oh, it's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. Uh, Rich, go, have a go. Red fruit, which you'd expect, I think, with Nebbiolo. Can I say plum? I don't know. Yeah, red plum. Yeah, maybe. But I think, but I think Nebbiolo is a bit plummy. Cherries and plums, absolutely delicious. And Nebbiolo, high acidity grape, as Louisa says, the grape behind the great kingly Barolo. Actually, yes, the acidity's there. It's not kind of really in your face in that wine. I think that wine is so beautiful with the fruit, don't you think? The balance is really good. I love it. It's a, it's a perfect balance. And when we talk about wines, whether we're talking about white, rosé or red, the one word that we want to look for is balance. Balance is the perfect amount of um, grape, uh, of fruit and acidity for a white wine and the perfect amount of fruit and tanning for a red wine. So, in other words, if, uh, if you have too much fruit for a white wine, you will just have uh, fruit juice. If you have too much acidity for a white wine, you will have something that will strip your palate. For a red wine, if you have too much fruit juice, you might as well drink Ribena. If you have too much tanning or too much wood, it will dry up your palate. So balance, balance, balance is the key. If that was an example of balance, I love it. That was really nice. And the food's arrived rich. So Burger and chips. It is. That's right. We've got, we've got, that's right, we've got some uh, fish bites and, and crinkly chips. Uh, now, we've got a pizza that looks, I think the word is rustic, Tons of cheese, uh, cherry tomatoes, obviously basil. That looks like pumpkin, but the spaghetti looks absolutely spectacular. This spaghetti is mine. Uh, Louisa thinks that she's going to get all the spaghetti. <laughs> oh, right. Does that mean that we're not going to get a lesson how to, 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 to roll spaghetti? Well, to be honest, I wouldn't like to wrestle uh, Louisa for the spaghetti. She looks very much, uh, very much as if it's coming her way. And that is mozzarella with the spaghetti, right, Louisa? It is, yes, it is. Quite unusual, but I'll forgive it. It looks amazing. The sauce, tomato-based, obvs. Uh, and incredibly rich with a sprig of basil, uh, Richard. I am now going to serve you a slice of pizza. Oh, just had a lovely mouthful, uh, Rich. Oh, you did as well. Mm. The pumpkin pizza. Pumpkin. The bread. Oh, wow, wow, wow. wow. It's amazing. The, the base, yeah? Amazing. The base, so, the pumpkin. Right, here we go. Oh, blimey. You're ahead of the game. Well, have a taste and then tell me what it is. The third, the third, um, third, well, one. The, okay. the third wine. So wine number three, which is white wine number two, with the rosé in between the rosé between two thorns, if you like. Hopefully not too thorny, let's see. Friolano, great variety I know slightly, not terribly well known. It comes, Louisa of course interject if I'm getting anything wrong here. Friuli Venezia Julia is that important quality wine region in the northeast of Italy, kind of north and east of Venice. Friolano is one of the indigenous grape varieties there, white grape variety. Smells lovely, smells a little bit herbal and citrusy, and maybe a bit of green fruit. Oh, wow. And what I really love about this Friolano, it's got a gorgeous body. It's quite um, unctuous. The French would say voluptueux. It's quite voluptuous in its body. I've got quite a textured body these days, Rich. Have you? Yeah, Have you yeah. been to the gym? No. Oh, okay. uh, I've been to, the, um, been to the pub and the supermarket <laughs> to buy more pies. That wine is very light, uh, very easy to drink, I would say. Louisa? Would you allow me to disagree with you? Absolutely, because you know what you're talking about. Because I think this is a gastronomic wine. It is a wine that demands food. It is very full, very beautiful, and it's always rich. It's, this is particularly lovely because it's 2018. But even if you had a 2020, it would still have this very rich characteristic. Ollie may have said it was light, 
because it didn't have that driving acidity of the Grillo. Oh, okay. It's light in the sense that it hasn't got that really mouth-watering acidity. It's broader in the mouth, isn't it? Yes, definitely, that's so. I'll, I'll certainly take that, uh, if it makes me look slightly less ignorant. I think I know what you mean. I'm just rescuing you from a dodgy yeah. situation. <laughs> Thanks, Rich. That's, you are my lifeguard. But meanwhile, what is this? I mean, honestly, this is outrageous. They have actually brought me spaghetti with a spoon and a fork. What is this? I mean, since when do Italian eat spaghetti with a, with a spoon? Uh, for the record, Louisa is absolutely outraged. I don't think I've ever seen her like this, and I've known her for about an hour and a half. Mm, I know. It's looking quite intense, though, isn't it? Um, it could go either way, Rich, to be honest. I, I think so. But, um, Louise, you better give us a quick... A quick resume of um, how Italians eat spaghetti. We use one implement and one implement only, and that's a fork, nothing else. This idea of putting your spaghetti into a spoon and then rolling them, it's not on at all. No Italian of any standing would be seen with a spoon near a plate of spaghetti. Come on. At the risk of um, having a fork stabbed in my face, doesn't it make it easier to have a spoon? I don't know, I will let you know in a minute because a lot has to do with um, the consistency of the spaghetti. If they have been cooked properly, if they have been cooked al dente, they will automatically wrap around your fork without any problem. If they've been cooked a little bit too long, you may have a little problem and you may need a spoon. I don't know. There's probably a, a PhD written somewhere on the, uh, on the elasticity of spaghetti or the, um, uh, what, there's, a, there's a coefficient of, um, of, of friction. Uh, in materials, I think. That's that right. is absolutely uh, allows you to stay on the fork without falling off. The coefficient of resistance, something like that. For the record, we now see a perfect uh, twist, I would call it, of spaghetti around a fork with no spoon. Louisa just threw it back and it landed in the kitchen with quite a clatter. So she's now armed with, uh, and dangerous with just a fork, but she has a perfect lump of spaghetti with a very rich looking tomato sauce on a fork. And a fork alone. Remarkable. So, Louisa has kindly given us um, a, a portion each, me and Richard, of the spaghetti at the right uh, coefficient of restitution for us to be able to twiddle. Richard is stabbing his with curiosity. Louisa is going on at a rate of um, about three twiddles a minute, but me and Richard are now going to try to twiddle. Rich, okay. um, I'm going to commentate as you do yours. I just twiddle it and it's fine. I get a little bit of spaghetti initially, not too much, and then... I just twiddle. Twiddling it. There's an enormous it. amount coming out. Oh, no, wait a minute. Yeah, well, well, that was quite a big amount. And wow, it's gone in. And then the, the bite, and then the little residual bits drop off. It's my score out of 10. Eight. Well done, Richard. Wow. Oh, very good. I thought I was going to get two. I'm twiddling. Uh, pretty much all the pasta that has been put on my plate has come up in, in a terrible stringy lump. And I've absolutely messed it up. Not too bad now, I guess. I'm going to put it in my mouth. At home. What's my score? You've got a, a seven and a half. I do believe I lost. Turnbull, yeah. not bad, could do better. See me. See me afterwards mm. for a tweak. I, I think that's very fair scoring. I, I wasn't despondent, but I was amazed at Richard's technique. So, yeah, good. The pasta competition is over. We can move on to the wines now. <laughs> Thank God for that. In Italy, they send us to university where everyone has a PhD in pasta. <laughs> PhD in pasta. You're born with a PhD in pasta. <laughs> it's a pasta higher diploma. Indeed. It's like in France, you're born knowing exactly which grape varieties each appellation you know, requires because it'll never tell you on a wine label. What are we born with in English? Eating chips with your hands.
But we have to move on. Uh, time waits for no man. The reds, Richard, you have your nose deep within a glass of a beautiful coloured red. Do you want to tell me a little bit about it? Yeah. By the way, time and tide wait for no man. Is that a full expression? Don't forget the tide. Ah, King Canute found that out, didn't he? He did. When they thought he was all-powerful, he's saying, I'm not all-powerful. I'm going to stop the sea, but then he got rather wet feet and was a bit cross. I'm not sure he thought he ever was going to. I think he was doing it to show uh, the people what a stupid thing. Anyway, never mind. I think it was a weird photo opportunity. Anyway, (laughs) two reds to taste. The first red we're tasting, the first black variety making the red wine from the deep south, from Puglia. It's the heel of Italy in the south. Negro Maro means bitter, dark and bitter, which doesn't sound great. And my experience is Negro Maro is really delightful because the grapes being grown in the deep south with a warm to hot climate there, they ripen so easily down there in Puglia. You remember 3050 old? Yeah, Yeah, yeah. we're talking 37 latitude or something down there, 38. Hot summers, really ripe grapes. Don't want the grapes overripe, remember, but you get a beautiful ripening of the grapes, and it's what I call sunshine in a glass type of grape variety. That's my starter for 10 before we taste it. Louise is very pleased with that. I can tell from her face. She's smiling, beaming. Have I done something right? You've done something right, finally. I I don't believe it. On the nose, I mean, it is just, as I was hoping, it just smells like gorgeous, generous, ripe, red fruit. Come, please come and join me. Let's get together, let's have a good time. And now I'm going to sip it and just, well, you taste it all. Oh, and then I always thought dark and bitter was a pint. It's like something you don't ask for in a Midlands pub. No, exactly. I'll have a, I'll have a pint of dark and bitter, please, mate. Somewhere in Nottinghamshire or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pint of dark and bitter, me duck. Hang on, let me try it. Fruity. Oh, it just smells so, so nice. Red fruit, Rich, am I right? Very plummy, isn't it? Oh, that just tastes so nice. Louise has talked a lot about balance. And I, I, I believe the balance in this is good. Um, she'll tell me if I'm, I'm wrong. But there seems to be that tannin, acidity, fruitiness, all balanced in a beautiful... There's a warmth of the alcohol as well. A 13% alcohol wine is coming from the deep south because it could be easy, couldn't it, to get up to 14 or above. Is that right, Louisa? 13% is a good balance. It could go higher, but I'm glad that the winemakers are making this wine at 13% no more because it is far more approachable for the consumer who might not have tasted Negromaro before. And so this is very good, very approachable. But, you know, you too, you haven't left me very much, you. No, we really liked it a lot. Negro Mauro. Beautiful. The three Bs. Balance, balance, and the uh, the other one. What, balance? That's it. Here goes Louisa with the dark and bitter, and she has a very satisfied smile on her face. Is it what you wanted, expected? From uh, a Negro Mauro from Puglia, yes. I'd, I'd buy this wine. It's very good. Yeah. By the way, did you notice the speed at which I ate my spaghetti? You've got to have your spaghetti while it's nice and hot, and you've got to have it fast before other people will steal it from you. Ah, right. That's the reason. Uh, yeah, no, that was pretty impressive speed. Okay, we're on to our last wine, Chianti Classico. Even I've heard of Chianti, obviously. But there's quite a lot of thought gone behind the choice of the two reds. Um, I know they're from the same vintage, uh, which makes them interesting to compare. I wonder if you could just explain a little bit more about um, how we should expect the two to be to be different based on sort of where they come from. It's nice to have um, uh, two wines from two different regions, but from the same vintage, 2020, because it does give you a better comparison of what to expect. 
in terms of fruit, in terms of uh, final product. The Negramara from Puglia will always come from very arid soil, which means that uh, the roots need to go very deep to get the moisture and the nutrients, whilst um, Chianti comes from the gentle hills of Tuscany with good irrigation and with a good variety of climates. So you do get your winter, your spring, your, your summer and your autumn. The wine is, uh, you will find it's quite complex, very velvety. It's Sangiovese, which is very different also. It's also the grape, very different from Negramaro. But it is uh, very velvety. And although it's higher in alcohol, 14%, it is uh, gentler. You will find it gentler on the palate. Wow, that is, I can't wait to taste it actually. Do you know what I'm reminded of, Rich? Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of season one. Was it the beauty of the earth? The beauty the of the earth. And Do you remember? Things, yeah. Yeah, very well. Soil, climate, this concept of terroir, understanding the environment, linking them with climate, the possibilities for the grapes, your limiting factors, all those variables. Stressing the little blighters to make them uh, more productive. And that's it. And, and actually the viticulture is getting stressed because I think we concluded who would be a grape farmer because there are so many things out of your control, like the blinking weather and horrible things like, you know, fungal diseases and scarecrows and hailstorms and God knows what else. Do you know what I mean? Scarecrows? Well, actually, no, scarecrows are... <laughs> what? what I meant to say is scarecrows are used to frighten away the birds who could eat your fruit. No, we like scarecrows. We like scarecrows. Sorry. That's a minor fit then. You were like, well, there's all the things like soil, climate, uh, Ford Fiestas and... <laughs> The type of weather season. Sorry, Sorry went a bit off uh, piece there. Yeah. Um, but lovely introduction, explanation from Louisa. I'm really interested in, in Chianti Classico. Everyone's heard of Chianti, which is a very, very large DOCG region. But Chianti Classico is actually a separate DOCG. It's not part of Chianti. It's next door to it, and it's in the more favoured, hillier area between Florence and Siena. Why am I banging on about this? Because, linking back to the beauty of the earth, in central Italy, the summers are getting pretty warm. And the thing you get in Chianti Classico, as I say, between Florence and Siena, the altitude's about 400, up to 400, 500 meters sometimes, slightly cooler from that altitude, just slows the ripening of the grapes a little bit, which can give you kind of more, more interesting, nuanced aromas and flavors in those grapes, which combine with the great variety of behind Chianti, whether it's ordinary Chianti or Chianti Classico or something special like Brunello di Montalcino, we're talking about Sangiovese, always has pretty high acidity, high tannins. So in other words, it's bears some similarities to, to dare I say, Louisa's favorite uh, Nebbiolo because of those high tannin, tannins often high acidity. Well, go on then, Rich. Um, Louisa's already had a sip. I think she thought I didn't notice. I noticed, but uh, here we go. The hand is around the glass, the nose is in the glass, um, if commentary is needed. I've got this thing about Chianti Classico. It doesn't have to cost the earth. It's not the cheapest category, but I think it's a very, I think it's a very good category of Chianti, Chianti Classico. You get reliability, you generally get good quality. On the nose, you can really smell these beautiful fruit, these lovely red and black plums, cherries. It smells absolutely delicious, like it's got quite good intensity. And then when we taste, have that lovely, I get a lot from with Sangiovese, this slight kind of sour, bitter cherry plums in a good way. A bit like the bitters in our Campari, <laughs> our little um, aperitivo. Pleasantly, slightly bitter, but also very ripe fruit. And with this drive of acidity, I have to say the tannins, Louisa, 
seemed quite soft to me for Chianti. What do you think? Yes, indeed, the tanning is quite soft. I would say well-developed. This is a Chianti made in the modern style because Chianti, as you know, Richard, would take years and years to mature. But now the new, the more modern vinification techniques allow a Chianti, the OCG, to be ready so much quicker uh, so that it can go to market so much earlier and be enjoyed for the fruitiness as opposed to um, as opposed to being enjoyed for the big tannings. And uh, what do we think of the um, summary of the Chianti Classico? Uh, I, would, I would consider it finished. Uh, that's the first thing. I would classify this as a very much a gone wine. I actually, I think I prefer the first one. Tell me how to pronounce it. Negro Amaro. Negra Amaro. Negro Amaro. I thought I said that the first time. You did? Oh, well. <laughs> oh, never mind. <laughs> ne let me have a go. Negro Amaro. Negro. Negro Amaro. Negro, Negro Amaro. No, she's happy. Thank God. This is like pleasing my first math teacher, Miss Souden, that I could do square roots. Was that after you sharpened your pencils in her classroom? In the electric, electric pencil sharpener, remember? We mentioned that in season one. Very important link back to the first season. Okay, guys, that's the food done. That's the wines done. I have to say, what a, what a lovely romp, a gay romp through parts of Italy. What do we do now, uh, Louisa? For me, I will skip dessert and we'll go straight to coffee. If that's okay, maybe a digestive? Coffee a digestivo, Oliver, what do you think? Yeah, that's fine. I wouldn't mind a cappuccino. Cappuccino? How can you, <laughs> how can you possibly have a cappuccino oh after lunch? I mean, what have I done? Oliver, I mean, you've drank wine, the tannins, you know, the, the acidity, and you want to put milk on it? Just think of the curdle. Uh, the Won't curd. it neutralise it or something? Well, uh, good luck in the toilet. <laughs> that's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Good luck in the toilet. <laughs> It's very, very sinister, isn't it? It's the sort of mafia connotation. It does. Hey, good luck could be in the toilet. Good luck in the toilet. Uh, <laughs> but this is a rather nice circle that we're drawing, aren't we? Because we started off with an aperitivo, with our Campari. Let's finish with a digestivo. Um, and are we going to finish with a wine-based one or a spirit-based one? Well, let's see what they have by the glass, because I'm not quite sure. At worst, we'll have a grappa. <laughs> at worst, have a grappa? Oh, my God, have you ever had grappa at all? I have, so imagine what at best would be. Yeah, I know. On the um, home straight with the di digestives, digestivos, digestivos. Digestivos. Yes, Louisa, you were saying how some aperitivos can also be digestivos as well. Is that right? Indeed, yes. And the typical example is uh, this beautiful chinar original recipe. It is uh, a uh, drink based on 13 herbs, but in mainly artichoke. Artichoke, as you know, it has a lot of health properties. It is very good for, for the stomach, for digestion. Good, good and for the stomach. Good for the love life as well, I think. I'm not quite sure, actually. I think I'll go with the grappa for the love life. But anyway, the chinar, as an aperitif, you would have it with seltz. In Italian, seltz is uh, soda, soda water, and a slice of lemon and ice. And we have this um, long-running ad on television showing this man at a table enjoying a glass of chinar, reading the paper, and loads of traffic around him. And the slogan is, chinar against the stress of life, which is beautiful. But Equally, you would like chinar as a digestive at the end of the meal, straight, nothing else, 
just to settle your stomach. We have here in front of us three dishes, Steve. One is a beautiful grappa from Monovitigno, Arnais. Then we have the Cinar and then we have the Amaro Verno. So they have this bittersweet taste. Let's not forget the translation of Amari, bitters, is not the same because in English a bitter would normally be orangey in color or red and be used almost as drops to add to a cocktail or something. Angostura bitters. Angostura, like Angostura, exactly, Richard. Well, here the bitter is better translated as digestive because it is an infusion of spirit and herbs which settles your stomach and it's absolutely beautiful. Incidentally, these amari, the digestives, could also be had um, with hot water and a slice of lemon instead of coffee at the end of the meal. Beautiful, especially if you don't want to drink coffee in the evening, this would be perfect for you. Given Oliver's um, faux pas, if we can mix up our languages, with, uh, with his um, cappuccino, I think his need of a settling stomachy digestivo is probably greater than ours. So you'd better go first, Ol. Yeah, I'm happy with that. So what am I having first? Uh, this is chinar. Artichokes, I'm not, I don't go mad over, but it's really nice. It's a real warm, caramelized feeling to it. It's really nice. Gorgeous. Yes, the artichoke. It smells like. I had a bit too much, actually. Oh, God. That is just gorgeous. Chinar is more like a tawny port in colour, whilst this one is like uh, a coffee, coffee yeah, colour, black coffee colour. Oh, it's so oh, nice. So it's so nice. It tastes very strong. I know, yes, it is strong, but it's not that strong. We are looking at around 16, 20% alcohol. Okay, here comes the grappa. Of course, it's white, colourless. Here comes the grappa. It looks so innocuous, Richard, like it's not going to help, but here we go. I'm grapping myself. Not my sort of thing. You disappoint me? No, not my kind of thing. This is pure distilled grapes. Pure. And the grape is Arnais, which is one of the white grape varieties of Piemonte. Is there a mint kind of taste to it? Have I got this completely wrong? But that, that taste is not for me. I would say you were completely wrong. Um, <laughs> there is an intense alcohol. I mean, the alcohol is what, 30% or something? 40%. 40%. So, yeah, but my God, it's so distinctive. Look at Richard, he's uh, keeping the glass. I actually want this glass. Come here. What have I done? <laughs> Nothing. I'm just having... You've had a lot of grappa. Really not for me. You will grow up one day soon. <laughs> you drink like a child. It reminds me of my first whiskey. Uh, admittedly, I'd probably be about 12. I was trying to pretend to like it, to please my father, probably. But that, no, there's something about that I'm not... Uh, I'm not into the other two. I think particularly the middle one. What was the middle one called again? Amaro Averna. Amaro Averni. Gorgeous. Uh, yeah, I might order that. You know. Which is your favourite, Rich? Of the, of the three, goodness me. I mean, I, I'm just such a sucker. I love them all. I love that grappa, but I want some dark chocolate with it. But tasting it by itself, I would go for either one of the first two. But I think the Sicilian one. One. Sorry, the name again. Amaro Averna. Amaro Averna just really delightful exciting gorgeous what a lovely drink and i think we just need to as we wrap up here just a quick recap folks we've been in italy brackets liverpool street station london ec1 or something or ec2 with louisa welsh louisa thank you so much grazie mille molto bene perfetto <laughs>
Oliver, have we had a good time? Uh, absolutely, delicious lunch. I've learned loads. There's only one drink I don't like, and that's the grappa. My spaghetti fell off my fork, so I got tucked up for that. And then I ordered a cappuccino, so I doubt I'll see Louisa again, which would be a massive shame, because she's been an absolutely charming, charming and knowledgeable and beautiful accompaniment to a, a rather delicious lunch. I am replete emotionally and physically, and I wish myself good luck in the toilet. Indeed, I think all it remains is for us all to say, Salute! Salute.